Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Rue Morgue Magazine. Subscribe to Rue Morgue for award-winning insight into the world and culture of horror, from books, movies, and comics to music, collectibles, and classics. Featuring the latest film, book, comic book, music, game, toy releases, and more delivered to your door. Guillermo del Toro called it the best damn magazine in the genre. Subscribe to Rue Morgue, the horror magazine of the 21st century, by visiting www.rue-morgue.com. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Coralie Farja is a French writer and director who made her feature film debut with 2017's Revenge, now streaming on Shudder. Coralie started her career in France as an AD, assistant director. After realizing early on that she wanted to be a director, she directed a short which she took on the festival circuit. The short ended up opening many doors for her, and from there she wrote multiple screenplays and took writing classes, all of which collectively helped her find her voice as a filmmaker. This path led her to pitching the concept for her first film, Revenge, to multiple producers and ultimately striking a deal. In this interview, we hear more details about Coralie's filmmaker origins story, the importance of being an assertive director, and tips for creating your own local filmmaking community and support system. All of this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, please give it up for Coralie Farja. Thank you for being here, first of all. And uh, overall, we'd love to get a sense of how you made the jump from wanting to make films to getting your, your first movie made. From what I understand, you didn't go to film school, right? No, I, I wanted to go to film school. Basically, I want to be a, a director since, you know, I'm a, I'm a teenage. Uh, I started, you know, to do homemade mobile movies with the, the you know, the TV cam and making a, a Star Wars remakes. Nice. <laughs> the, the animated figures and my friends, you know, in, in, in Star uh, Troopers and everything. So... Uh, yeah, it comes from a long time ago, and when I uh, I, I want so basically I wanted to do um, the, the the film school we have in in France in in Paris, which is a three year film school, but you have to you know to be graduated from university before. So basically, I went to you know political sciences in order to after do this school. So. When I was in political sciences, I was very unhappy because that's all what I wanted to do. So after that, I decided I didn't want to do any school anymore, even in film. And I needed to, you know, be on the field and be in in the um, in the stuff. So 
I started to work as an AD. Uh, I started like a, as a trainee and after a second AD. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I started with uh, American feature films that were shooting in, in France. So for me, you know, I discovered like big sets and, you know, knowing nothing, but, you know, being in the middle of what I've, I was dreaming about. So, and that was very uh, useful. And I learned a lot uh, by, you know, witnessing and being a part of a life of a film where, where you learn like nothing, you know, happens. Uh, right. Was supposed to happen there is always a bad thing that you need to solve and also learning how a, a crew is like a little society with you know intern fights and you know people egos and right. you know, like life and so that was very very useful uh, for me and but after a couple of years I could feel that I had learned what I could learn, you know, on that side. And I needed to try and do my own movies. So I made a first short film, um, which wasn't that much in the genre because in France, uh, at the time it was almost impossible to do genre films, horror films, like it didn't exist at all. Mm. So I knew I needed to be smart and find an idea I loved that I could direct in a way that I could do what I love and, and, and put the direction that I love. But choosing something that first wouldn't cost a lot of money, so it could be finance. And secondly, that's the something that also the industry would accept at the time because you have to put a step, you know, in the in the door. And so that was my, my first short film. And, you know, it was great. It was very well received. And I did many festivals at the time. And uh, so basically it opened many doors. Uh, but at that time, what I hadn't realized is that um, I I didn't know yet what I was going to do next. So I didn't have, you know, a feature project. It was just the beginning. So, you know, I found myself like having all those doors opened and, you know, and I, I didn't know how to go and where to go and with what to go. So basically it took me a bit of time to figure out what, what it was I really wanted to make in feature films. So uh, during that time, I, you know, did many different jobs, nothing, uh, you know, just to earn my living and writing on the side. And also, um, uh, you know, uh, going to a year class in, in writing, which helped a lot as well. And basically writing many projects that maybe didn't, you know, um, got to the end, but helped me really finding what it is I like and what I want to do. Um, so finally I knew that I wanted to basically make the movies I loved to watch when I was, you know, a teenager and a young adult and I, that created my love for cinema and, and, in France, it's very difficult to make those kind of, of films because the industry uh, is more focused on, you know, uh, more social drama, you know, uh, more intimate films. Um, 
So I, I knew it was going to be difficult. So I knew for if I was going to write a genre film, uh, an action or horror films, I needed to have done something before that would help people see, okay, she can do that. You know, they have something because a first film, your first time director, nobody, you know, trusts you like that. So I decided I needed to make a second short film that would be closer in the themes and in the look and in the shape to what I want to make in feature films. So that's that was my second short, uh, which was a sci-fi movie, an anticipation movie. Um, and it was very different from Revenge, but there are a lot of similarities. Like I create a totally new universe. It's in the future. So it's not a, you know, it's, it takes you somewhere else. There are uh, special effects and a strong, you know, uh, art direction and, and the most important, I knew I, I shouldn't repeat the same mistake than with my first short. When this second short was going to be done, I needed to be ready for the future. So as soon as I finished uh, shooting the, the short film, I started to write right ahead. And it was like, really, at that time, I put myself under lockdown at my home, like writing, doing only that, being in a kind of a, yeah, of a warrior mode, like, okay, it's now or never, you know, it's like, you've you've been writing a lot of projects that didn't succeed. And, and when you want to be a director, it's a, at some point, it's a matter of life and death. Like, you know, you want to do that so much that you know, it's how you're going to fulfill, you know, as a person. So there is this moment where, you know, it's your moment, you have to take it and, and you have to risk everything, you know, to, to make it happen. So, so yes, basically, I just started and didn't stop um, from the moment I started to write the first line till the moment um, the film was ready. I, you know, I wrote, I went to see every producers, I, you know, I pushed every doors I could, uh, so the movie would be made in the coming year, because I knew this kind of movie needs the energy, you know, uh, to keep rolling. Like you can't put the project and wait for five years. You know, this right. kind of energy uh, doesn't, you know, uh, you have to preserve it and you have to. So, uh, yeah, so I was um, also very involved in finding financing in, in the way that a lot of people like the script very much but um for a first time filmmaker there is a big difference between they like they love the script but they're going to put actually their money on the script and this is a jump that it's not easy to you know to make and and for this i think you have to show them and convince them that basically you you live with your film and you know where you go and you have a strong vision that you're you know uh, yeah, that you're ready to uh defend no matter what um and i think that yeah it took the movie only a year to get financed oh wow 
So that was pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, that is pretty quick. So how did you convey all of these things to your producers? How did you, because I mean, a lot of people are pitching producers very, very frequently and they get pitches all the time. But how do you communicate to them that you are going to stand by this movie and execute your vision all the way, particularly as a first time filmmaker? Yeah, well, basically, I think that from the moment where I signed with my producers, uh, I was I was lucky enough that um, I wrote a very detailed treatment. Um, like, also, I think that's something that really matters. Like, when you write, you know when you feel interest from people. Like, I had a first, maybe, I don't know, 10-page, you know, uh, treatment, like, outlining the, the story and everything and people oh it's interesting there are great stuff but I could feel that they were not ready to jump yet mm-hmm. and so I knew I had to work again and basically give them more and develop also more where I wanted to go so I wrote a longer treatment which was almost a script it was maybe a 40 pages like very detailed uh, treatment where in fact, I found the movie like it's for me. Finding the movie is not only finding the story, it's finding what's the soul and the spirit of the movie is going to be. So I knew what the music was going to be like very hypnotic, uh, you know, electronic sound and uh, also all the misaphor, myth, uh, you know, uh, thing with the eagle and the non-realistic, you know, action thing that she's kind of a you know dead angel arising from her own ashes yeah and and basically this is what really convinced like you knew you had a film like sometime at there is a point you you know you have a good idea or you know you have many things you want to to follow and there is a point when where you find the movie what's the movie is going to be and i knew the movie wasn't wasn't going to be about survival you know it was going to be a totally non-realistic uh you know um action revenge uh metaphorical uh thing um and and with that i gave a lot of uh material um to try and communicate even if the the treatment was very detailed and written in a very literary literary way where you could really feel the action the suspense the spirit but i also gathered a lot of images edited a little trailers based on photos with a super uh hardcore music uh you know kind of a epileptic stuff and <laughs> With those things, that's really what made the, the difference because um, people could see they, they were going to have something special or different. They couldn't know the, at that stage the movie, what totally was going to be the movie. But right. they, it gave them the, you know, the, the confidence to want to bet on the movie. Mm. Um, it sounds like it, it, it conveyed to them that you had a very strong vision for it. The fact that you submitted such a detailed treatment and that you send, you sent treatment videos that conveyed the tone of the movie. I feel like a lot of filmmakers when they're pitching their movies, just don't do that or forget to do that. Yeah. And, and also cause the, um, the, I knew that the, the core of my movie was this, visual you know atmosphere and the way it was going to be directed one of my reference for the movies is duel from spielberg mm-hmm. 
Ruby was basically a car and a truck, and there is no talking. So you know that um, you have to relay on what what you're going to create with a few elements. You're going to create something totally, you know, stressful and uh, with a lot of anxiety and suspense. And um, and also, I think what is very important, uh, it was... I. I was really ready at the time and that was what I was giving to everybody. And even when I had doubts or, you know, I didn't know, I wouldn't share that. You know, I I I wanted to go and that was my only light motive. You know, I need to shoot this movie and I need to go and I'm ready and and you know, and this way you and you say, okay, the train is leaving. Either you come on board, or you know, or I'll have other people come on board. Hmm. And being as a director, you are the captain, you know, of the train, and you have to uh, show that your train is gonna go no matter what, and you know, find people who want to jump on board with you. And I've heard from other directors that when they're pitching producers, it's important to convey that the train has left the station. You know, it's important to communicate to them that the, you're already working on the movie and that it's already in motion because most producers will jump on board once they realize that the movie is going to happen. So somehow getting the train to leave the station, it's probably the most challenging part, but it sounds like that is the most important part for, for producers. And then once you get one producer on board, that's when the rest of them start, you know, jumping on board. But how... Um, for those filmmakers who were just sitting there with a script and they, they're dying to get it moving and they just can't seem to get producers to bite, how how were you able to get the train out of the station, so to speak? How were you able to get the, the project moving and drive that urgency that it, that got producers to jump on board? Um, well, basically, I think it's about uh, being real, realistic to where you where you are in your career and what's the the smart choice of project for what what you want to do and i know i knew that for a first feature film made in france where we don't do genre and we don't do horror if i wanted to have a chance that this movie was going to be made i needed two things i needed first that the story is very like simple like you know there is a line and people can follow the line and when the line is very simple they can accept a lot of crazy stuff on the side but they have something they can you know follow very clearly and the second thing i think that is even more important is that the movie is not expensive Hmm. a first feature film has to be cheap I mean, you will get the freedom, you will get um, uh, people being able to trust you because no matter what, they know that, you know, if it's a failure, they're not going to lose a lot of money. And uh, and I knew that that's what I also what I needed for that film, like to be able to be uncompromising, like to choose an unknown cast if I wanted to be able to be very, very gory if I wanted to be able to, you know, be unconventional if I wanted. And and this, you know, you, you can't have everything right away. Um, so I think when you when you start, you win so much time when you understand that from the beginning, that the simpler and the cheaper 
cheapest you start, the the fastest you you will go. And it took me a few years to understand that, you know, because when you start, I think every filmmakers want to make big movies and big directors, and I want to make Star Wars, and you know, and you want to do action and sci-fi and okay and. But basically, you can write all those movies, but there is no chance that um, it will end up being your first feature film as a, as a director. So I really think getting into the business is also learning how to, um, yeah, how to be strategic in a good way, like the choices that are smart to do to allow you to do to realize yourself, to get to where you want to to go. So, uh, yeah, so that's also what I had in my mind when I started to write, like, okay, you're going to do something very simple. Three people, uh, four people in a desert. Okay, and that's it. And for the end scene, for instance, which in the end is one of my favorite thing in the movie, when I was writing, I, I said to myself, Okay, I know I won't have money for that film. I can't make everything explode, you know, in the villa. <laughs> I can't make everything blow up, which I would have loved if I had all the freedom, maybe. So I said, okay, you have to do something very simple and use what you have and very little and find something that will make it memorable, that people will, you know, will um, remember and basically using this chase in the corridor between two people like hide and six with this naked guy, um, I, I knew this was with very little elements. I could, I was going to be able to create something very specific and more important that was going to be very, very myself that nobody else would have done, you know, in, in another film. And and so sometimes, and a lot of time, I think when you have limits with your budget, it forces you to be even more creative and go towards ideas you might not have had if you had all the money in the world. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is something you can lose on the way when you start to um, to get more things and, you know, and to... So I think it's always keeping a balance, uh um yeah between the whole freedom and what you know uh um uh, limits gets you in terms of creativity in in the end that makes a lot of sense so one of the interesting things that i remember hearing when you did mick garris's podcast was after you'd done your short films and you brought them on the festival circuit you met a number of other filmmakers and together you seem to form this collective where you all were sharing each other's scripts and you were getting very objective feedback and you were also supporting each other you know and helping each other get by can you talk about how you were able to build that community because i feel like it's it's so important for aspiring filmmakers oh yes this uh, basically this i would say this is my and this has been my film school in fact the this is the film school we created together like an auto film school for ourselves uh, that is not a school but where we learn from each other and um and i think when you're when you're starting as a filmmaker it's a very lonely industry like everybody you know 
is quite competitive. And when you're in festival at the beginning, you look at everybody, oh, who's going to get the award? And, oh, you, and, and, you know, and there is something that uh, pushes you to not being a very, um, how do you say, open to share. And uh, with friends of mine, uh, it was two friends at the beginning. We met, we had our short films at some festival and we decided that, um, yeah, that, um, in fact, the, the, the beginning point, we, we had done successful short films and we all wanted to do our first feature in the genre, which in France is very difficult. So we all were facing the all the same problem. And we said to ourselves, okay, so maybe rather than complain about the system that is so bad, you know, the system doesn't want to let us do our, our movie and the system is bad, maybe we have to um, think about what we could do differently to be able to uh, make our movies. And, the, um, and, and, and what we decided is that the best way to get the reality of how you make movie and how you can succeed in making movie is by being with people who actually work in the industry, producer, directors who've done, who've directed many movies, script uh, writers who've, direct, who've written a lot of movies, head of departments, financier, people from, you know, um, the distribution world. And we started to gather every two weeks at the beginning and we were inviting somebody from the industry to come and share with us. We were a group of six or seven, share with us their experience, how they started in the business, how they're working, uh, what were their experience working with first time filmmakers, what difficulties they encountered. And this was our, you know, our reality shot um, that we got from the industry, making us a little bit, you know, fall from our dreams like, okay, I want to do this and I want to do that and think about, okay, so this is how the industry works. So um, maybe for a first time film, it's important that it's not too expensive. Hmm. Maybe for a first time feeder, it's important to work with a producer who uh, also is in a position where he's still hungry and wants to make movies for the same reason and not a producer who's, you know, producing huge movies and don't really care about, you know, a newcomer. And so all those advice, basically, I, I learned them there with those, you know, gatherings and with keeping also this strong contact with um, the other filmmakers and meaning that we all go up and down, you know, like we have things we do successfully and we have projects that, you know, never succeed and we have our really ups and downs. And I think it's really super important to be able to have this faithful community you can share what you go through with. Mm. Um, because it's a tough, it's a tough industry, and and there are waves, and 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 I think you need to, um, uh, yeah, to make your family basically, and and I think really, and and I say it often that it's, um, 
I, I think it's really thanks to this that I managed to overcome, you know, all the difficulties I had to, you know, uh, to make the right choices and to, you know, go to make it. Um, and that is something that I keep very uh, preciously. We still, you know, meet in Paris and sometimes a lot of us can't come because we have our projects and our shootings and everything, but we try and stick to it, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I'd recommend everybody to create this strong family uh, around them. That's great. So you all would meet in like coffee shops or at each other's apartments and sh- talk about your projects and share nights. It's a, it's a mastermind is what it is, which is very important. So that's yeah. that's really fantastic. And you're still doing it, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. <laughs> So one thing I'd love to talk about is the look and style of revenge is very striking. It's, it's very beautifully done. It feels organic on one end, but it also feels stylized at the same time. So I was wondering how you visually approached the movie because the aesthetic is very striking and and really beautifully done. So what was the, where did the original concept for the look of the movie come from? I mean, did you see some either photographs or was there art? How did the look and feel come together and how did you communicate that to the DP? Uh, yeah, in fact, when I was uh, when I was writing the treatment, uh, and it was the version when I told you I I found the movie, mm. it came along with find visually what the movie was going to be. And for me, finding the movie, it's two things: it's of course the story and the 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 soul of the movie, but it's the visual and the music. And so I was listening to a lot of music while writing, and also did a lot of visual. Uh, researches, uh, photographs, paintings, uh, other movies to create while I was writing uh, the visual of the film. And um, so, yeah, it was uh, a lot of photographs, um, also giving intentions like the movie had to be at the same time, as you say, very organic, very raw, very harsh but at the same time very central and very um uh close to the bodies so Mm. there were many pictures with hyper realistic paintings you know with uh, flashy orange juices where you could see the juice and the and the flesh and and you know all those things that create very strong feelings when you when you see them and so after when we started prep and I started working with my DP um, yeah I shared with him uh, all those images and we talked a lot about the different um, uh, ambiences I was uh, looking for and also the Mad Max Fury Road was a very strong inspiration I was gonna bring that up (laughs) yeah the desert part because I I think the yeah the desert thing was so so cool because it was not totally realistic and that's that what i i loved and that's where i wanted to go for the film not mm. being in a mere reality but going to the phantasmagory and created uh, creating uh, something that is over the top well how did you achieve that look because that desert look that's in fury road is amazing but you can tell that they they alter the colors a little bit so was it a matter of was there any were there matte paintings in in your movie i mean how did you achieve that kind of supernatural nature look 
so we we didn't uh, have have uh, had made painting. We couldn't afford it. I would have loved to. Uh, but basically, everything uh, happened. Uh, two things: uh, we used uh, filters during the shooting, like to make the skies, you know, bluer and have everything a little bit uh, more contrast and 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 grab the the old natural colors of the desert. But a lot of it. Um, was made in the great, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, grade grading? Yeah, color grading. Grading and no, and the first thing, of course, it was when choosing the location. That was um, very, very important thing for me. That the desert had to look a certain way. So we did a lot of scouting to find, yes, this kind of stunning environment where you have you know, different colors and there were a lot of red rocks and uh, natural contrast that helped creating, you know, the the mastery of of this thing. And after it was a lot of um, grading work uh, with all the references and working a lot on the pushing the colors and um, uh, creating this very, very strong, uh, yes, visual, visual take, um, that we, we, we wanted to. So yeah, it was a, um, mix of these three things, uh, the scouting, finding the right locations, using filters and certain kind of optics to, uh, enhance what we wanted. And finally the, the grading, uh, that added a lot to, uh, yeah to the final result. Like I, I heard they had a, a year of grading for Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> we, were, we weren't that rich, but I, I'm, I'm not a, um, uh, yeah, there were so many amazing stuff they did that, yeah, I'm not surprised it needed a, a year. <laughs> <laughs> and you shot in Morocco and obviously Morocco provided a really stunning series of of uh, of nature and landscapes and things like that but um was morocco also partially i mean i would imagine filming in morocco would be more expensive but in terms of a low budget production were there any financial incentives in filming in morocco no uh, there, there were not in fact we chose morocco because for us it was the cheapest uh, location where to shoot we had done scouting in spain in jordania in israel in morocco and they all had great locations, uh, but they, uh, the other countries were super expensive and we couldn't afford for our budgets. So Morocco had also like the major advantage, like we found the villa. And that was the most difficult thing to find, like something that is quite isolated. And also with not too far away, everything we needed, the water the desert, the cave, um, and it was difficult to have this gathered, you know, not in the same place because we basically had three or four base camps uh, traveling during the the shooting. But there were there were, for instance, amazing desert locations, but we couldn't afford to to go because they were too far away, and you know we were we would have lost uh, too much time. So it's finding the right balance between, you know, what you need and what also you need to preserve in terms of, uh, you know, driving, energy, losing time for, you know, going from one place to another. And and Morocco had 
had everything. And also what was very important that they have amazing crews there. Like they have a lot of shootings, American films, American series. So uh, they are very, very experienced. And when you have to shoot quickly with not a lot of um, shooting days, you know that you need to be able to rely on your crew. Um, so yeah, that, that was great. And shooting in the desert, obviously, those are very harsh conditions. So how were you able to, I would imagine there were moments when it was unbearably hot and it was like filming Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, when you hear Toby Hooper talking a lot about how miserable the entire experience was because of the weather and the elements. Was there any of that in Morocco? And if that was the case, how were you able to to lead your crew through that and keep morale high? Oh, we were miserable too, that's for sure, <laughs> You shoot in a desert, I think there is no other way possible. But in fact, what was funny, not so, so funny, is we didn't suffer from the heat, but from the cold. Because in fact, we shot in February, and in the mountain, there is a freezy wind. Everybody was freezing to death. And the actress was barely naked, like she had a swimming suit. So that was very, very difficult for her because we had to, you know, spray water on her to fake sweat. And she was so cold uh, that it was very, very hard to, uh, yeah, keep her, you know, with enough strength so she could go through the whole movie. And she was, she has been amazing because Physically, it has been so difficult and she never lost confidence. And I think when you have hard, harsh conditions, you need to have a very strong uh, bond with your actors that you know that they're going to follow you and because you know you're going to ask them a lot. And um, yeah, and, and, and the shooting was very intense because very physical. Everything was complicated there was no like calm days you know when you shoot people entering a cafe or walking <laughs> in a street like we were going from something that was difficult because you know of the trees of the blood or because we were in the middle of the mountain or because of the cars or because you know um so that was so great but at the same time we had not a second to rest so uh, we had to go 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 and uh yeah sometimes you know when the shooting is finished like you say oh my god how did i manage to survive that <laughs> <laughs> and then you collapse <laughs> well one thing you touched on that i think is so critical is you talked about how it's important to have the trust of the the cast and crew at the very beginning so that they'll follow you through these really difficult and harsh environments knowing that you'll take them there safely but also knowing that you're building something great together so how were you as a director able to establish that kind of level of trust with your cast and crew at the beginning uh, well, basically, I, I didn't. <laughs> um, well, and I think that's something that is very also important to know that uh, for many reasons, um, uh, things can cannot be ideal either with your uh, cast or with your crews. Because, you know, in a, in a film set, there can be a lot of tensions for different reasons. And sometimes production, you know... Uh, faces its own difficulties you're not responsible for, but everybody suffers about it. And also as a first-time filmmaker, 
um, nobody trusts you either. Like uh, you push everybody very hard because you know you don't have a lot of shooting days and you want to get the best for your movie. And also you want to do things your ways, which might not be like the classical ways. For instance, as I'm also editing my own movies, I know when I shoot exactly what I need, how I'm going to edit it so I can, you know, shoot very short stuff here and then, for instance, in the final uh, chase in the corridor. Like we had so little time to shoot this that I knew if I wanted to succeed, I needed to do it 100% my way and really tell to everybody, okay, you run from there to there. And after we shoot that direction and we shoot this piece and that piece and there was a blood and it was really crazy and a mess because nobody could go into that corridor without sleeping, um, slippering. And, and, and at some point, like nobody was knowing, you know, what was happening and what I was doing basically. Um, and this is, this moment where you need to stay strong um, so as even if people, you know, doubt of what it's going to be, you know, you have to keep, you know, trusting yourself and know that you do those kind of stuff for a reason. And sometimes uh, you don't have time to explain and sometimes you don't have time to be nice and sometimes you have to enter into some kind of conflicts because you need your film to get going and to get what you need. Um, so sometimes that's not nice, but you have not to be nice. Um, and I think that's something that you have to go through. You'd rather not, like you'd rather that everything, you know, happens nice and smooth um but sometimes it doesn't and as a director you have to stick to your movie so for a first time film you you, you don't control everything because you know for instance like there is a lot of crew you don't know yet like you work with new people and with some people it's great and with other people it's not that great but you know you can't afford to change somebody uh just before shooting or during the shooting because you don't have money you don't have time and maybe on you know bigger project when you have done many movies you know uh, it's easier to be able to be sure that you're very well surrounded but uh when you begin you have to you know handle um uh what you get and the moment you get it so uh, of course, you do you do your best, you know, to uh, make everything going the best as you can. But it was related to what I was saying when I started as a trainee or an AD, you know, for having on many shoot shootings. You know, it's not the the it's not paradise. Like uh, many things go wrong and many things don't go as you have planned. And I think what makes you strength is your ability to overcome those difficulties and to handle the things that go wrong and that go not the way you had planned. And after they are of course, a lot of satisfactions, a lot of, uh, you know, great things that are happening and gives you energy every day. Um, but I think especially for first time of feature film, which are very ambitious 
and with you know low budget it's it is very um uh yeah a hard a hard journey and and I think as much a great experience than something that you have to go through, basically. Right, right. And I feel like that's a real balance for a lot of filmmakers is they don't want to be too much of an asshole. But sometimes you have to be one, you know, when certain things aren't going well and you, you have to get certain people to rise to the occasion. Sometimes a certain level of aggression is is needed. But I think it's that balance, right? Like you don't want to be an asshole all the time because then people will check out and then they won't work hard for you. But there's certain moments when you just, you need to aggressively lead your crew. And I feel like it's a real balance that a lot of directors striving are striving for. Exactly. And I think that the one thing I always have in mind is that you're going to be with the movie in the editing room and the, in the editing room, the crew is no longer there, you know, and, you know, nobody care if, okay, this is not the way you want it or you miss this or you miss that. And you are going to present the movie to everybody. And you will, you will have to live with your film for the rest of your life, uh, you know, and you're the only one as a director who handle that responsibility. So, of course, um, I think it's something that, you know, you have to keep in mind to be able to be happy when you're in your editing room to know that you, yeah, you, you made the movie you wanted to make. And, and uh, um, yeah, and I think it's, um, uh, for a lot of things, it's a, it's a balance. Like, you have to find the, the right um, uh, balance. And I think when you grow in experience, you also learn to uh, surround yourself very well with a crew you know well, people you love to work with and people you know you can communicate easily with. And I think in that way you win a lot of times. And I, I, I've read so many, you know, testimony of big filmmakers like Fincher or Coppola that they were so miserable in their first feature film. Like all the crew, like it was very hard for them with their crew. And, yeah. you know, I think it's Coppola, I think, or, or I don't know, he went to the bathroom and he heard somebody have his crew say, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing, you know, and, and, and yeah, and I think you need to be prepared to face this in, you know, um, when things doesn't go the way you would love them to go. Also, when you start, you are. it can be because you're young, because, you know, people think you're inexperienced, because maybe sometimes you're a woman. Uh, there are a lot of things that, you know, can um, make people see you in a certain way. And after it's just your work that speak for yourself. And after for the second and third movie, I think th the work has been done. So, you know, you can uh, uh, win a lot of time on, on set. Yeah, I think it was James Cameron who said on a film set, every single member of your crew thinks they can make a better movie than you. <laughs> you know, there's there's that constant sense of questioning everything the director is doing, and it's something I think a lot of directors have to be prepared for. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and uh, and it's changing in a way, and you are you have to be able to take what you can take and what is good to take, and leave what you don't need and what you don't have to take, and and yeah, and this you are the only one who can know that for yourself, right. 
So I know we were talking about the visuals of the film, and I think one of the most striking visual elements of the movie, and I'm sure you've talked about this at length, but the earrings were were very, very striking throughout the course of the movie. I interpreted them as being a reminder of her previous self, because obviously she rises like a phoenix from the ashes in the beginning of the movie, and she transcends her previous persona, you know. But uh, to me, those earrings were a big reminder of her her kind of tacky past because they were very tacky earrings, but they were very visually noticeable. Could you talk about how you made that choice? Yeah. Um, it was going with the, the, the symbols I was, um, talking about when writing the treatments and it was finding those elements, very strong, very simple and very metaphorical that would, um, embody that, that you would remember. So it was the earring for the beginning. It was the um, phoenix for the, the tattoo. Um, it was her going from blonde to brunette uh, over the course of the, of the movie. And I knew that those elements were stronger than a lot of speeches that this, this speak for themselves. And as you say, the, the, the earring are the incarnation of a part of herself that still sticks to herself, even if she's a new person, because it's herself and nobody can destroy that. And even if she transforms, even if she evolves, even if she goes through a lot of things, nobody can take that away from her. And, um, yeah. And I think for me, what I love in films, uh, in cinema, that's the simplicity of what images can bring so clearly and so powerfully that will stay with you. Um, uh, and I think in every movie you, you love, there is, yes, one or two or three very strong elements that will stay with you and that will keep working, you know, after you've seen the movie. Yeah. So I'm sure you're tired of talking about the rape revenge genre, but it's a genre that is very synonymous with cruelty and exploitation. And I feel like your movie didn't have any of that, though. If you were to try to classify it in the context of horror subgenres, I suppose you could put it in the rape revenge genre just by virtue of the story alone, but it does not feel like a rape revenge movie. So I'm wondering how, if you observed the genre at all, because I don't see a trace of any other rape revenge movies in there, but did you watch I Spit on Your Grave or Last House on the Left or any of those movies? How has that genre either affected or not affected revenge? So in in fact, it didn't affect me at all because Basically, I didn't want to do a rape and revenge. Um, and it's, you know, when you make a film, it's other people at some point who, you know, who take the film and say, it's this, is that, and this doesn't belong to you anymore. And But it's very interesting to see how the film evolves in that, in that process. Because for me, at the beginning... I, I had watched uh, the, the last uh, house on your left, but I hadn't watched, uh, I haven't seen, and I still haven't uh, seen I Spit on Your Grave. And I didn't want to, to see it before I, I did the movie. And the idea was really, I even didn't know, to be honest, that the rape and, rev rape and revenge was a genre in itself. Um, 
And I even, um, I wanted to do a genre film, a revenge film, an action film using the icon of the girl and how men can see such a girl depending how she presents herself. And for me, it's really the image of the Lolita, you know, uh, that is for me, fascinating because it says a lot about how society is organized uh, dealing with women, with women's sexuality, with uh, the how men look at women and how they can be, you know, everything when they're nice and beautiful and sexy and when they start to be a problem. OK, they are nothing. We can get rid of them. And that was um, was interesting interesting for me and and that what I want I wanted to tell and when I started to write the script you know I I was thinking about my story and how you know what was going to happen and I I said to myself well the worst thing that can happen to her um uh for being this type of girl um is being raped is for me, I was seeing it as a symbol of every violence that can, you know, uh, go towards women, that can be violent word, that can be violent, you know, way of seeing or way of considering and and psychological violence. And for me, the, the rape also was some kind of metaphor of all this violence hmm. and the way, you know, society can uh, be very uh, unfair towards those those matters. And that's also why I didn't have the need to really film and show the rape, because the rape, the rape wasn't the subject of the film. I intentionally wanted to leave it out of frame in a way yeah, to keep it as a symbol, to keep it as a very strong symbol and something that, you know, was um, a strong part of the movie, but wasn't the core of the movie. And um, yeah, and my references for the movie were more, you know, uh, revenge film like Kill Bill or Rambo or Mad Max, uh, when a character goes through hell and, you know, and goes for revenge and becomes somebody else in the process. Um, so, yeah, I think what you get from the movie is basically uh, my intention from, from, from the start. And that after um, what I think is, is kind of uh, beautiful in a way, that's the way an audience or reviews take your movie and analyze it and uh, put it in some genre or another. Also, finally, um, you know, make you say something loud that maybe you didn't consciously wanted to say or decided to say, but which is there. And I think, yeah, that's, that's why a movie is great because when you've done it, it's other people who will, you know, analyze and digest and and make him come up that you 
even didn't know, but that were that were, were there. Yeah, because the movie feels like it does not have a specific agenda. It just flows, and it's very much its own. It's, it's it has its own level of energy, and there's not any overt political messages, but there's a lot to be interpreted, you know. So I'm wondering what has the response been from the perspective of female empowerment after seeing it? Um, well, it has been a very amazingly timely, like uh, when I presented the movie, it was in Toronto and it was just maybe a month or two before the Weinstein uh, history came out. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was something like a very, you know, when a film and history meet and you didn't plan to, but in a way, of course, that I think I, you know, I had digested a lot of things that were already there in society, but just not, you know, told. Um, and so I think it became some kind of um, iconic vehicle where people could uh, jump into to talk about those matters. And um, but as you say, like there is also very entertaining, very vehicle and very action that is the the own strength of the of the movie. Um, uh, and I and so I think the the way the movie were was received really evolved with how the whole political stuff with the Weinstein stuff evolved. And the more you know, uh, uh, the the speech was uh, there were the people talking about you know violence, sexual assault, and everything the more, you know, the movie became uh, a subject of discussion and was spreading and was interpreted and was, uh, and really benefit of all this to have this, um, uh, like, growing power, you know, growing uh, stuff that you even didn't expect. And so that was very, something very, very strong. Um, and in France, it took a lot longer for this to be able to um, to come. But because mm. in France, we had a lot of difficulty like facing all those issues. Like we had maybe, we were maybe two years late or three years late. Oh, and wow. We're, we're still very late on, the, on all those matters, like, you know, equality and gender parity and sexual har- harassment. We are just starting to address those matters. So we, 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 the movie, uh, yeah, benefited a lot from the way it was received in the in the U.S. and then it spread uh, in Europe. It was very fascinating to see that, and that's what I like. I think it's the best when you feel that your movie grows in time, like. The movie is living for two, three, three years, and there are still reviews, and you know, and and I think that's why you make movie that you hope that it's going to stay with people, you know, somehow. And um, yeah, so that was 
very very interesting to follow all that yeah that is interesting and i was noting that you'd said in the past it was difficult to make a horror movie in france which is really surprising considering there was that whole time period where you had um something like pascal langier's martyrs and then there was alexander aja's high tension and then other movies like inside there was a whole french extremism movement but is that not really the case anymore no, well, you know, the French extremism was an American interpretation of the of the French horror wave. Like in France, those uh, movies are very uh, exceptions. And, you know, and it was at a time, it's true, there were those filmmakers, but it was always very strong for those movies to get made, to get financed. And, um, and they were still... Um, not creating like um, massive trends in in France, but more abroad. Like yes, like America really uh, embraced those films and Asia as well. And and those are movies that are very international and speak to. That's what I love. Like they speak to everybody. But the inner French industry, um, it's. Yeah, it's very, it's not the movies that, that, that are the most, you know, um, identified and, uh, and praised and, uh, um, and they are, now it starts to evolve a little bit, uh, but it's still very difficult to make those kind of films in, in France. So hopefully we have the rest of the world to, <laughs> wow. to uh, yeah, to applause them and to, and to uh, recognize them. Yeah. Well, France sounds like French directors need to come to America or go well, to Asia. They did. <laughs> A lot of them. <laughs> Are there any up and coming French horror filmmakers who you're finding particularly exciting nowadays? Um, or any recent movies? Yes, there are uh, uh, some of them who are coming. There were the movie I really liked um, from Dominique Rocher. It was the uh, the night ate the world. Like it was a zombie movie, like in a Peri Parisian building, hmm. uh, which was very very interesting. Uh, I think Roe as well was a very interesting uh, film and filmmaker. Um, in horror, there are a lot of new filmmakers that are coming. Like there are, I think, two or yeah, three very interesting projects that were in editing when the pandemic uh, arrived. So, uh, but I'm, I'm sure that they are fine there. They way in a, in a bit, but it's. It's still very few. It's still, uh, yes, maybe one every two or three years, you know, that's managed to really, uh, yeah, pop up. So that's, that's yeah, um, France has a very strange relationship with, with horror in general. So surprising because I love those French extremism movies so much and there's a ruthlessness to them that a lot of a lot of other horror filmmakers are just not able to do or just not doing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just I love the ruthlessness of of that entire subgenre. So it's so surprising to hear that they're not well embraced in France. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you're not always a king in your own country, like right. <laughs> in, a puppet in your own country. Um, but that's what I like, that uh, 
cinema doesn't have, you know, frontiers. So you can, you can, your movies can, can travel and, and that way it's great. And sometimes it's also when they are successful abroad that friends start to really like them and to embrace them. There is a kind of boomerang effect, you know, yeah. also in the process. So what are you working on next? So I'm uh, working on my next feature film. Uh, I'm almost done with the writing. I've been really focusing on that for um, the last couple of years. Um, it's going to be a genre film as well, but very, very different from Revenge. Not at all the same uh, genre or setup, but it's still going to be very excessive in a way and very... Um, yeah, very, very me in the way I like to deal with some kind of violence, even if it's going to be a very different one. Uh, but I still try to find, yeah, uh, a story that I'm going to be excited to tell visually and, you know, with the sound and the music and create something that I'm going to be excited about. So, uh, yeah, so I hope like when the whole pandemic will end, uh, yeah, the movie will enter into production and and I should shoot, you know, within the the next year. So yeah, I'm very impatient. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it's exciting. So you're writing the screenplay right now. You're still, you're working on the, so what is your writing process like when it comes to screenplays? Do you have a certain minimum amount of words or pages that you try to get to every day or is it a little bit more intuitive? How, what is your writing process like? Uh, no, it's, it really depends on what phase uh, I am of the, of the process. I, I really start with just, you know, writing ideas on a paper with a pen, uh, and taking a lot of time to, okay, what is it I want to do, you know, working around different ideas. And when I start to define a little bit more where I want to go, I, you know, I, I start to write very different things at the beginning. It can be ideas, it can be a scene, it can be some characters, it can be uh, a genre, it can be... And so there are a lot of different things. And after I try to construct things a little bit more and, you know, draft the first outline or first synopsis. And 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 when I've done that, it, you know, it's um, it shorten your ideas. You have to select the ideas you really want to talk about and the ideas that are not really the project. And so it's really during the treatment phase that I really find the movie that I'm finding as much as the story as the universe I want to set up in directing. Like what's the music is going to be? What's the visual is going to be? Uh, how I'm going to tell that movie? Um, and this all constructs all together. Um, and the more the process goes, like, the more you focus on the thing that it is really the movie and a lot of things fall apart, you know, and you put them on the side, but they were not really the movie. And I think you find what the movie is by digging, you know, in, in the writing and you finally see the, the, the rock and you have to, you know, dig and dig and dig and push the dust and what is not essential 
to find really the core and what's the heart of the of the of the movie and that's um yeah how i i like to work is like um being very radical in my in my choices and and focus on something very strong that is gonna really drive the movie um that is not only the story that is how the 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 movie is going to be crafted and how it's gonna look and sound and and so everything builds all together um yeah for for my process right well last question on that note is uh, how do you know when your screenplay is done how do you know when you're done um I think there is a, a, a moment you know, and um, I think you're, you're, there is a moment you know that your script is not done. <laughs> like You can like your script and you think there are great parts and you know the movie is going to be great and you know that the script in the end is going to be great, but you, you know you're, not, you're still not there. And, uh, but I think... Even if you're not there yet, you still have to cross um, steps. So I think you have to be able to make drafts that you know that they are going to be shitty, that you know that they're going to be incomplete, that they know you know that they're not going to be exactly the movie. But these are steps that will help you to go to the top of the stairs and. There you start to digest what you've written. You can make, you know, people read and make you feedbacks, and all this keep working. And and by making the successful uh, successive draft, the the moving keep changing. And um, and I think at some point, like you know that um, this is the movie that you want to make, like that this is it, like um, you didn't write that scene because you have to respect this rule or because uh, somebody is going to expect that you put this, but because it's 100% yourself and that you are at ease with every scene and every word. And and at some point also, I think you need to go and to jump in the water, like... Um, um, you know that the movie is going to evolve, the script is going to evolve while you're going to be shooting. So you have to be like 80% ready, but I think there's still those 10% that you don't have to wait for. Like you have to launch the train and the 10% will, you know, be made while the train is already going. <laughs> It'll take care of itself once yeah, exactly. the momentum is achieved. Yeah. <laughs> great. Well, Corley, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was it was great chatting with you. Any parting advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Do what you like and really be yourself as a filmmaker. That's great. I think the main advice. <laughs> On that note, thank you again. Real pleasure. Yeah, me too. For me too. All right. So here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Coralie. Number one, prep your materials. 
In addition to the script for Revenge, Corley wrote a 40-page treatment that described the story, plot, and visuals in stark detail. This really conveyed to producers that she had a real clear vision for this project. She also did a ripomatic treatment reel video that showcased tonal references of music, movie clips, and imagery that further defined the movie, all of which gave the producers more confidence in the movie and in her. Number two, conflicts are inevitable. Sometimes, in the heat of the moment on a grueling set, while you're over time and under budget, you don't always have time to explain things. And much as I hate to say it, according to many directors, sometimes you don't always have the time to be nice. Yes, as a director, you should strive to make every effort to be as respectful and kind to your entire cast and crew as much as possible. And as Chelsea Stardust mentioned on a previous episode, when it comes to filmmaking, it's chaos, be kind. However, throughout the course of making films, sometimes you will have to assertively enter conflicts so you can get what you need. There's a difference between being an asshole and being strategically aggressive. If you're a miserable fuckface on set who yells and screams all day every day, your crew will check out instantly and underperform, and you'll deserve it. But if you're too nice, you run the risk of being taken advantage of. There's no clear answer here, but this is an eventual scenario that all directors will have to face and figure out on their own. Coralie discussed her own struggles with this, but how inevitably she was on a low-budget set and had to get things done her way. And as a result had to whoop some ass here and there, but she did so strategically. Eli Roth tells a story about the first day on the set of Hostel. He and a bunch of the crew members bonded over drinks the night before production, and he went back to his hotel room early, but the crew stayed out drinking and showed up on set completely hungover. Thinking Eli was their friend, they felt entitled enough to do this without consequences. They were wrong. As a result, they dragged ass that day on set, and without batting an eye, Eli yelled and screamed at the guilty parties and even fired some of them. As harsh as this may sound, this set a precedent on his sets that this type of behavior will not be tolerated. If it's not your nature to be aggressive or assertive, it's important that you think about the bigger picture. Coralie touched on something so obvious, but I rarely hear it, and that is that you're going to have to live with your film for the rest of your life. Every frame, every detail, every decision will be etched in stone. So those moments on set when you have to fight to get what you need or fight to get something done the right way or a better way are all worthwhile battles because you only get one shot. Film is permanent. Do not let anybody off the hook, especially yourself. Number three, step into the void. If you're a first-time filmmaker, nothing can prepare you for your first movie. Yes, make shorts, go to film school, read Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, and watch every single special feature making of that you can. But things will inevitably go wrong. There will be things that you don't know how to handle. Crew members may turn on you, effects may break down, and that scene you agonized over might not even end up working. Now, the way that you respond to these things, the way that you handle yourself when you're at the mercy of all the things that go wrong on set... That's directing. Coralie mentioned how her work as an AD led her to realize that directing is problem solving. Because of this, she was able to approach her first film with confidence, despite not entirely knowing what she was doing, but she figured it out along the way and made a kick-ass movie regardless. A lot of would-be directors get daunted by the thought of their first movie or spend too much time preparing or over-educating themselves instead of just doing it. Successful first-time filmmaking is a messy process and largely a matter of jumping headfirst into a difficult shoot and flailing your way through to make your days on set and somehow, by the grace of God, making a good movie in spite of it all. 
As important as preparation and education are, as a filmmaker, you can never be fully prepared for the difficulties your movies will bring you. You'll simply gradually get better with every film that you make. So if you're approaching your first film, embrace feeling stupid. Embrace feeling unprepared. Embrace imposter syndrome. And embrace the fact that you don't really know what you're doing. Because nobody ever really does until they get a few films under their belt. Number three, build a collective. I was shocked to hear Corley mention that horror and most genre films were not widely accepted in France, but apparently despite the French extremist horror movement, this is the case. As a result, though, Corley built a community of other aspiring genre filmmakers who would learn from each other, pool resources, and ultimately become a support system. They would even invite industry professionals like writers, directors, and producers to share their experiences on filmmaking and working with first-time filmmakers. These kind of relationships are priceless, not just from a networking perspective, but from a life perspective. As the saying goes, you become the sum total of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. So if you want to be a filmmaker, spend time around other filmmakers. Are you in a small town with not a lot of film people? Turn to social media, hold meetings via Skype, Zoom, or whatever, or start a podcast. You'll need a community, a family to fall back on when the going gets tough. And Coralie attributes her ability to overcome the many difficulties she experienced producing her first movie to this community that she built. So find your tribe or build it from scratch. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it'd mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.